We want someone to be able to think laterally, to be able to solve problems. If you're not hitting your targets, you got to think more laterally about what else you need to do to solve for that. We've got ownership as one of our core values. Why do we have that? Because we want everyone to, to think of this as if you're given a target, you understand how that contributes to the, the success of the whole business and you own it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you're not doing well, you feel it, right? It keeps you up awake at night and you think constantly, how am I going to do better, right? That sense of wanting to do better. Finally, we've got one that's called high standards. And I think that speaks to, again, this idea that, you know, it's not just about setting a low target and hitting it and being happy about it. But if you set an ambitious but realistic target because you hold high standards for yourself and for your team, Welcome to the Asia Growth Forecast. I'm James Gilbert. I'm excited to be bringing you this HubSpot for Startups mini-series of the Asia Growth Forecast in collaboration with Antler. In this three-part series, you'll hear from some of Asia's most exciting startup founders and their sales leaders on how to build a successful sales strategy for different stages of growth and scale your startup across the region. Our special hosts for this series stem from venture capital firms and incubators who have played a pivotal role in growing and nurturing Asia's startup ecosystem. We hope you enjoy this startup special mini-series. Now, let's get into today's show. My name is James. I look after our startup program at HubSpot. We heard in our two prior sessions a lot around the sales process for earlier stage companies and your kind of seed series A, very successful companies on, on amazing trajectories. This session is going to be more on the series D, deeper level, uh, more built out sales organizations. And, and we'll try to cover some of the topics that weren't covered earlier today. So with that, uh, do you want to do a bit of an intro about yourself? I'm Pui Lim, Singaporean, born and raised. I lead the commercial or sales team at Glintz. For those of you who may not know, Glintz is a Series D stage venture-backed uh, startup in the HR business. So we are a regional talent ecosystem in Southeast Asia. We represent 5 million young professional talents in geographies uh, such as Indonesia, Vietnam, and of course, latterly, Philippines, uh, Malaysia, Singapore. We are in the business of connecting those young professionals to career opportunities with employers, particularly businesses, big and small, but particularly startups. And we do this through a manner of online recruitment. So we run a job portal, but we also run this through a couple of service businesses, a local non-executive recruitment business in Indonesia and Vietnam, and also a business that we call cross-border hiring solution, which we basically used to connect particularly businesses in high cost economies like Singapore to talent supply in the countries that I mentioned earlier. If I'm a customer of Glintz, what does my kind of customer journey look like? Am I purchasing everything online? Am I chatting to a sales team? How does that work? Mm. I think it really depends on what your needs are. I think the online journey, I think very much applies to a job seeker segment uh, that's fresh out of school. So that's where you see a lot of active job seeking behaviors. So if you're looking for fresh graduates or maybe one year out of school, that's where I think your journey would commence, mm -hmm. right? And you would use our job portal for that to, to good effect. If you're looking for uh, to fill roles, which actually are really hard to fill and 
where I think the demand supply logics are actually in the favor of the employee or the candidates. And you know, in the last seven or eight years, one particular vertical that has displayed those sorts of uh, demand supply logics has been, for example, hiring software developers, right? Mm -hmm. Where you've got a lot more demand than supply, or at least at the right price. Then you would engage one of our AEs or AMs and mm -hmm. you would enter a conversation about enlisting our services, either on the local side or the cross-border side to tap into that supply. <laughs> uh, what is their kind of relationship with, with the potential customer and, and how does that work? So I think AEs or AMs uh, or in more senior levels, we call them ADs, the, the direct level guys. I think they essentially play the role of uh, trusted advisors. So I think when we talk about, I think, small businesses, especially startups, most commonly, I think you don't know who to hire and you don't know how to hire. So we actually find that there's a lot of value that we can bring to the table simply by playing that role of being an advisor, where we give you insights to uh, how to hire. So for example, what sort of qualities, what sort of, uh, how do you write that JD? How do you craft it? How do you position it? To actually where to hire, right? So if you're looking for, if you're very, very budget constrained, capital constrained, we might be able to direct you to a particular talent pool that mm -hmm. serves to that purpose. However, conversely, if you have particular uh, requirements, for example, you're indexing heavily on uh, language and communication skills, or you're indexing heavily on technical skills, then we'll be able to direct you accordingly. So it's almost like a blend between a sales role and what people would think of as like customer success. Would that be fair or? Yeah, no, I think so. I, I think that's something that we came to realize over the years, right? That it wasn't just about making the sale. Uh, and really, I think it, in, in our business, in our line of business, it was particularly important that you could actually build a relationship and you build that relationship by delivering real value, right? The value is, uh, value capture for us is not at the point when uh, we sign the contract. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually at the point when the customer achieves a successful placement, a hire, mm -hmm. uh, and then three months down the road, passes that hire for probation, right? And is happy with it. Yeah. And so is that part of the economics for Glitz where it's like, okay, if you break down how much you're going to get from a customer, mm. like you said, it's not just at the point of, okay, we're going to interview this person and hire them. There's multiple steps for a successful placement. That's correct. So I think the sales funnel actually is fairly long and has multiple steps. I think there's a first stage where I think it's just advisory and consultation where we get to the point where you sign us on for an engagement. No dollars are exchanged at that point. And then there's the second part of the funnel, which takes you all the way to what we call a placement or a match. Uh, at that point, then that's a payment, right? And that's for what we call a placement fee. Mm -hmm. Now, post-placement, uh, if this is the cross-border solution, uh, we then have a, a follow-through service where we're essentially acting as your outsource HR. Over here, we're basically helping you to onboard your hire, and we're helping you to take care of all the statutory and regulatory requirements behind that. Uh, and that carries a recurring fee. Mm -hmm. uh, and over here, then we are actually measuring the success of the account on the basis of uh, net revenue retention. And is it a bit of a, do you find with a lot of your customers, it's a land and expand of like, once we get one hire successfully done, there generally is an opportunity for five more roles or we become their predominantly source of new hires or how does that work? In the best instances, uh, mm -hmm. that's exactly it. Whenever I describe our business and especially the cross-border version of it, many people say to me, oh, then the pandemic, normalizing the idea of remote hiring, that must have been great for you guys. And my answer would be, it's, it was great, but it was also not so great. Uh, it was great because in one way, it did normalize this idea of it doesn't really, really matter whether uh, someone's sitting 500 meters away or 
actually 200 kilometers away, right, across multiple geographical borders. So I think that acceptance of that was great. But what it wasn't so great was also it created this notion that you truly could actually build sustainable, scalable teams anywhere and everywhere, which is actually not that true. I think over time, we've actually realized both for ourselves and also for our clients that the best way to actually build sustainable and scalable teams and an underpinning assumption of that is the ability to build culture and the ability to build, um, therefore, cohesion and integration. And for that to happen, you minimally actually have to look at hybrid setups mm -hmm. where you co-locate um, your teams in a particular location. So you could look at a cross-border uh, opportunity if you're a Singapore-based startup and you're saying, I'm, I want to hire in Indonesia. But Indonesia is an archipelago of thousands of islands and 200 million people. So it's not about hiring you know, one person working out of their kitchen in Jakarta, another person in Surabaya. It's actually about picking a location, let's say Bali or Bandung or Batam, which is about 30 minute ferry ride away from Singapore. And you say, well, I want to build a team there. Mm -hmm. And if you make that decision, then the, what you just described at the, st at the start of your question plays out. Because then you start to see, okay, I've got one person, that person's pretty good. I'm going to bring another person and that person works together with that person. That's a good dynamic. And that's the seed of a team. And in the best instances, we have seen client accounts that start with one person. Uh, our best account today has a, about 200 people, right? Wow. Sitting in one location in Indonesia. Yeah. And so what kind of profile do you go for for these AAE roles? I like mm. That's quite a complicated, long consultative sales okay. process that's not your cookie cutter like no yeah phone jockey uh <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a very different skill set so how what how would you describe the profile that's that's successful given sure. those parameters I, I think i'll talk about it in two different levels uh i think first level i think who before what and when i say that you know we privilege very much qualities and culture fit over skills and experience so what sort of qualities and culture fit? I think we look for raw intelligence. We look for coachability, ability to learn. We look for culture fit and Linz has a, we're a D-stage business. So you would imagine we've got a pretty codified culture value system by this point. We've got seven core values, right? And we, we do look at for uh, a very, very close alignment and fit with that value system. Uh, and that's super important for us, right? Earlier today, I think many members of the audience heard about founder-led sales, right? Founder-led sales is absolutely critical and I think it's so important for the success of early stage startups, but founder-led sales are, it's really difficult to scale. So I think from D stage and beyond, you know, scalability is top of mind. And the way we try to build that into our DNA is you build it through emphasizing that who before what, right? You get the qualities and the culture fit that the founders and their DNA embody, and you try to bring that into the team. Why is that so important, right? Because by the time we get to the what, right? I think there's two versions of the what. Uh, there's one version of the what where I think in our core markets, and this is the second level, I think in our core markets, you pretty much have a product market fit that you're fairly confident of. You've got a GTM, a go-to-market playbook that's fairly stable. So it's more about being able to build systems and process to repeat it mm -hmm. and to do it at 10 times the scale that you were doing it before. So you've got the who there anchored by the qualities and the culture, and then you look for skills and experience that play to that effect. So in the core markets, you want to emphasize, especially in the sales leaders, systems and process, and you want to emphasize in the AEs, uh, the sales reps, people who play well in a structured environment to that effect. But you're, you, you can't just stop there, right? Because even at a D-stage business, you're expanding. I started by talking about the cross-border business that we run, 
being very much catered to clients or employers in high cost economies like, like Singapore. Uh, we've been thinking and we've been working very actively on regional expansions. We've been trying to bring our business to, to Hong Kong, to Sydney, Melbourne. And when we bring it across borders to new geos, new segments, uh, we realize that the product market fit needs adaptation. Mm-hmm. You can't, it's not a copy paste, right? So you realize that you do need to make some tweaks. Uh, you need to, in a way, you don't have to completely reinvent your PMF, right? Thankfully, but you do have to make tweaks. And for those guys, you look for a different set of skills and experience because here you're actually going back a little bit to look for what's sometimes called the Renaissance sales reps. I think that's a term that's popularized in an article in the Harvard Business Review. And you, the audience can Google it if you, if you like. Sounds like it was written by a sales rep given the yeah. grandiose <laughs> title. <but yeah. laughs> Sounds highfalutin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it makes sense, right? Because essentially in those instances, you actually need a, a degree of adaptation and adaptability with your sales reps. So you look for something a little bit different. And the culture, the seven cultural values that you have, how much do they match the characteristics that are really needed to be a successful AE versus how much are they like more broad cultural like characteristics that you want across a whole company? I, I think it's uh, they speak to the latter, mm-hmm. but in my view, I think they actually do underpin very much what makes a good sales rep. So I, I can run through some uh, some of this, right? I think. Uh, uh, one, va- one core value that we have is, for example, relentlessly resourceful, right? So this speaks to a very, very entrepreneurial requirement, right? We want someone who, to be able to think laterally, to be able to solve problems. If you are not hitting your targets, you've got to think more laterally about what else you need to do to solve for that. We've got ownership as one of our core values. Why do we have that? Because we want everyone to, to think of this as if you're given a target, you understand how that contributes to the, the success of the whole business. And you own it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not doing well, you feel it, right? It keeps you up awake at night and you think constantly, how am I going to do better, right? That sense of wanting to do better. Finally, we've got one that's called high standards. And I think that speaks to, again, this idea that, you know, it's not just about um, setting a low target and hitting it and being happy about it. But if you set an ambitious but realistic target because you host high standards for yourself and for your team, then that speaks well for the business. So Series D and Glitch has been around for quite a while. What Give people a sense of the size of your sales org at the moment and and what does it look like? Like, is it a BDR heavy, AE <laughs> light? Is it the opposite? Like, how does it work? Uh, okay, that, that's, a, that's a slightly longish answer to that and a, slight, uh, a shorter version. I'll give the shorter version mm-hmm. first, right? A short answer today, we have about 700 plus people in the organization overall and about 50% of that would be uh, our sales organization. But we have three different lines of business. You know, we've got an online talent platform business and that's very much product heavy. So that's got a fairly light uh, sales organization that's probably about 50 individuals at this moment. And then we've got a local non-executive recruitment business that's much more service-led and that's quite a lot heavier on the sales org. So that's probably right now, I think about maybe 200-ish people. And then finally, there's the cross-border version where I think it's a bit of a more of a blend <laughs> between the two. Uh, and that one, you're looking at maybe about 50-odd individuals, yeah. 50 individuals. And yeah. what what are, are they all the same role or you've got to break mm. down in different roles? Earlier on in our journey, I, I joined the business at about B stage. So I, I took it from B to D. And you know, in that period, we, we grew sales by about, I think, 4x over a period of two years. I think during that period, you know, it was the period where I think it was still, the market momentum was very much favorable for us. So we had a lot of tailwinds to ride on. 
And for that, I think being very, very acquisition focused, we then designed the team to be that way, right? So mm. we were really heavy on well, BDRs. We, we call them SDRs uh, because that was top of the funnel outbound lead generation. And then we were really heavy on hunters in the team. The last 12 months, however, have actually been quite quite interesting, right? The, the environment has obviously changed quite a bit, uh, especially where startups are concerned, uh, given the interest rates and the capital environment and macro changes. And we've actually shifted more towards a AEM model, mm-hmm. uh, where we are much more focused on existing accounts, on the customer success part of it, deepening the wallet share, privileging NRR over local acquisitions, yeah. So we have a similar thing at HubSpot where we have direct channel and then we have a partner channel where agencies resell HubSpot to their customers and we have internal sales teams on both. Mm. We call them like, you know, the direct guys are more hunters and and the people that work with the partner channel are more farmers. But we've always, not always, but more or less had both. Mm. It sounds like you've gone from one to the other. Yeah. Is there a place for both? Is it a sign of maturity of the business where it's like, oh, we've really maximized our direct opportunity here and now it's just farming the existing customer base? Thanks for asking that. I think it's an evolution, right? I think definitely an early stage of business. I mean, you, you don't have a client base, right? So you, you have to build a client base. So I think acquisitions, I think definitely have to be really important if you are still at B stage, right? You're just B, what's, what's B stage? You've, you've got PMF, you need to to scale up your revenue traction. I think with that, then you start to shift more towards uh, AEAM. We're now trying to deepen wallet, wallet share. Uh, you also use the two these two words, direct versus indirect, right? I think something that we're thinking quite actively about right now is amping out our indirect. So we're quite keen on partnerships. We're quite keen on partnerships, not only at uh, the top of funnel layer, so marketing well, awareness and lead generation, but we're also quite keen on partnerships when it comes to uh, sales partners, right? Mm-hmm. So like what HubSpot is doing, right? The way I think about it is it's an evolution and I think you have to grow in terms of your, your complexity of channels mm-hmm. depending on what your, your business requirement is. For us, we're at the stage where, you know, we've got a product market fit that largely works for a core business and a core set of markets and segments. But we're at the point where this phrase, crossing the chasm, I think you're at the point where I think your, your core playbook gets you to this far, but that's not enough anymore and you need to go even more than that. Yeah. So I think channel di- channel expansion is one thing, geo expansion is one thing, segment expansion. But do you ditch the original playbook no. or you just layer on these other You ones? layer it on, yeah. Because yeah. the, the, the original play, playbook still works, right? That's what got yeah. you to today. Yeah. Right. But uh, what got you to today is not sufficient to get you tomorrow. And for your business, I imagine you work across a ton of different industries. Yeah. And as you've grown... Have you also verticalized your sales org by those industries to get more efficiency or you keep them broad-based? No, I, I, absolutely. I, I think when we when I first joined the business and we were at B stage, I think we were fairly guilty of just spamming the market, right? Because mm-hmm. we were like, you know, we need to get customers, right? We, we, we need to hunt. So we were like, okay, let's just look at the broad sweep and whoever we can get, we'll, we'll talk to them and we'll do everything that we can. I think with time and you know, now we're at the stage where we are trying to you know, deepen our relationships with customers, verticalization comes up organically, right? So we start to realize, oh, actually we've got particularly strong competencies that speak to, for example, for us, we do particularly well with uh, supplying IT consultancies, right? Uh, 
Uh, why is that, right? Because, well, we represent a very good supply of deaf talent in the tech stacks that they need. Mm -hmm. We start to realize, okay, if we have that kind of specialization or verticalization that's developing, how much deeper can we get into it? Because I don't want to be just one of a hundred vendors of <laughs> subcontracting for an IT consultancy. I want to be the number one subcontractor, right? Yeah. And then, of course, what, I, what I'm thinking about the day after tomorrow is beyond that, how do I get to the end users, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think verticalization is something that has come up somewhat organically. I think just by initially boiling the ocean, we, we've come to the point where, okay, we actually realize what we're particularly good at and we want to double down on that. It's like another level of product market fit where it's like you have a broad level of product market fit, but geez, is it very strong in these That's particular right. verticals. That's and right. And it sounds like you've got the interesting flip where you are actually a marketplace. So it becomes a two side, like a supply element as well as like, how do you double down on that supply to, to maximize that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you have to, right? Because I mm. think initial, the initial PMF that you get at A stage or B stage is kind of permission to play. Mm -hmm. You know, the market, you found a little toehold in the market that says you're permitted to play. But at this point, uh, at D stage, we're playing to win. Mm -hmm. Right, but I can't at this stage. I'm not MNC stage business at this moment, right? I'm not a large enterprise at this moment, so I'm not playing to win across all the field. But where I think I have an, a possibility is I can play to win in particular verticals. Yeah, and I'm going to double down and chase that. That makes sense. Before we move into the next segment, here's a quick word from HubSpot. Are you a startup founder looking for the right set of tools to speed up and scale your sales process? Join HubSpot for startups and get access to free masterclasses, startup toolkits, a connected ecosystem, and up to 90% off the entire HubSpot platform. Unlock everything you need to increase leads, accelerate sales, and streamline customer service, all without blowing your budget. Head to hubspot.com forward slash startups to get started. So it sounds like you bring on board salespeople where the complexity of the hire is more than a very junior role, where the demand supply and balance is more on the employee's favor than it is the employer's favor. And then you do a mixture of BDRs and AEs. And it is really this consultative long sale where there is a kind of land and expand opportunity within your best product market fit. Yeah. How do you think about compensation for your sales team? I feel this is always an interesting topic. <laughs> I've never, ever, ever heard a salesperson say that they're well paid. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, I actually have this whole internal riff where I'm like, I think salespeople actually have done the best job in the employee market where <laughs> they don't generally need a higher education degree for the job. They're generally the best paid in the company, you know, so much so that you see chief sales officers get paid more than CEOs. Yeah. A lot of the reps get paid way more than like directors of other departments. And they're quite particular about the way they'll work. It's like kind of a nine to five. You have to serve coming from marketing. This is maybe a bit of a marketing bias. <laughs> you have to serve everything on a platter. And if the platter's not fresh, they'll make a lot of noise about it. I'm like, wow, you guys are actually quite effective. You're getting a pretty good situation <laughs> here. And so I'm curious as someone that oversees such a large sales org, yeah. how do you think about it? How does it change by regions? Like, mm. you know, a lot of people, of your elements of base, variable cash and equity, do you see that change depending on where they are? Can you give everybody a bit of a, 
overview of that? Yeah, there's, there's, there's actually so much complexity into this question, right? Let's start with cash versus equity first, right? And this one, I might deflect the question back to you a bit because I, I, I do think that in Asia, uh, I do think that in Asia, there's still a level of uh, conservatism when it comes to attitudes towards equity, especially I think, you know, in the last 12 months where the capital environment has changed and maybe the perception of value when it comes to stock option programs or warrants, whatnot, may have also been affected. But I do think that there is this layer of conservatism where if you look at cash versus equity, I think in this part of the world, I would hazard a guess that most sales guys uh, working for startups would still rather index on cash. In my, I've had a few interesting experiences where I've had people in roles say, you know, I'm only earning X. And I'm like, okay, but if you look at your base plus your variable plus what stock has vested to you that year, mm. it's actually 1.4x. And they're like, yeah, but stock doesn't count. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you pay tax on it, don't you? Like it accounts <laughs> to the government and like you have it, don't you? And they're like, yeah, but I don't think about it the same. And I'm like, good to know. Like congratulations, <laughs> you're getting very little stock going forward. But I do think, I think you're right. I think it's a very, very fluid concept. I remember my first role out of college was at a high growth company in Australia and no one got stock. It wasn't a, it wasn't a thing yeah. then. And then I joined like a few iterations later, joined HubSpot yeah. and it was an automatic thing. Everybody that joined yeah. in got some stock. If you look at the period from like 2018 to 2021 I can even be more specific like yeah. like November 10 2021 if you had tech stock you thought you were Warren Buffett like it just kept going yeah. up to the right and everybody was like all of a sudden taking fancy holidays yeah. getting fancy watches and buying crazy houses and stuff and then if you didn't sell in <laughs> November 2021 uh, you got big tax bills the following year for a stock that's now worth substantially less than it was yeah. in the year that it vested and so that 100% changed attitudes where you know I know some people who joined companies and they joined, they got a stock grant, they paid tax on it as it vested, but the following year it's worth 20% of what they paid tax on and now they hate stock for life. <laughs> and then, you know, people who like sold pre-2021, they're like, yeah. stock's the best thing in the world, you should only work for stock. So it is a fluid dynamic, I would say, and I think it does depend on the examples you've seen of how successful or not exactly. it is. Yeah. So I think where, you know, Anybody who's joined a company in the last few years is probably quite negative on it. Especially successful examples of liquidity, I think. Yeah. I think that's the key word, right? Well, and then there's to your complexity point, I think in the private market, there's even more complexity around how bankable is that liquidity yeah. with all the different options that uh, investors may have. I also think the level of understanding or awareness of how exactly stock options work it's not very high. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and also that also in a way affects the, uh, the understanding and the perception of value. Uh, but, but answering the question beyond the cash versus, versus equity question, I think then there's also this question of like, you know, variable versus fake. We know there's a few different structures around this. You can do an OTE on target earning structure. Uh, you can do a bottom up sort of commissions-based structure uh, with a degree of variability. But even answering that, that question, I think first it has to start with an understanding of your business model, right? Mm. 
what is your business and what are the economics of your business? Much more particularly so today in this today's environment and the sentiment and the focus on, uh, I think, profitability rather than just, just growth. <laughs> uh, you need to understand what can your business afford. So, you know, if you're working for a, a SaaS company where your cost of your product is, is relatively constant, right? I mean, you're selling code. You actually have the ability to then afford a, a compensation structure where you're fixed versus variable. Uh, can be probably in a 50-50 ratio. OTE basically doubles up your, your fix. That's possible for most uh, SaaS businesses, right? Conversely, if you're looking at service businesses, which, you know, Glint is a bit of a hybrid, right? We've got one side that looks much more like a product, one side that looks more, much more like a service. Then your ability to offer that degree or magnitude of variable probably is more constrained, right? So for us, I would say the ratio tends to be more around maybe 30 or 40% on top of the fix. And that's the business model, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you need to understand because that structurally sets the boundaries of what you can afford to pay. There's no point going out there and hiring the best guy who's worked for a SaaS and then not being upfront about what you're able to afford. Yeah. Because the SaaS guy is going to come on and be like, hey, you know, yeah, you know, when I hit my targets, you're going to double my pay, right? And you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that's, that's, that's also that, right? I think a real appreciation for what your business model is and what you can actually afford in your in your margin. Is that also fluid depending on the stage of business? Like your your series D mm. well defined company now that's like okay, here's where we've got to fit now we're running as fast as possible and yeah. let's make this business as efficient as possible. But when you're early trying to get those early logos, trying to get that early revenue, yeah. is it actually worth taking a hit where it's like listen, we're going to take a loss on the first 100 customers we bring on board, but it's because we're going to learn so much more, refine our product. Hopefully there's a land and expand opportunity that will make them profitable. But like we just need to show some revenue traction, even if it is negative on the P&L. Is that fair or not? Uh, I, I think it is, and absolutely. And, and I think the first thing I would say is that even a D-stage business, uh, like I said, right, I think, we're not homogenous, right? I think we are also expanding and we're crossing the chasm in some parts of our business. So there are parts of our business where we are actually looking more like an A stage or B stage business. It's new for us. Mm -hmm. That's number one. And then the second thing I would say is that I think for those frontier segments or markets and equally for an earlier stage business, you're probably really bad at target setting. That's what I'm going to say. You have no idea, right? So you're just going to be like, yeah, I can do a million bucks. <laughs> and you have no idea. So if you set that on an OTE basis, what's going to happen is either you grossly underpay someone or if you were really bad at target setting the other way, you would grossly overpay someone, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't work either way. So I would say that for uh, parts of the business or an earlier stage business where it's much more immature, you probably want to be looking at setting milestones rather than very specific targets in terms of OTE or that kind of economics of, of getting to profitability. So you want to set a milestone just, just to get to an idea of what you need to establish a confidence of product market fit or confidence of a consistent and scalable sales engine. Mm -hmm. So what are the metrics for that? Yeah. You say, okay, you do this in the three-month period or you do this in the six-month period, then that unlocks, let's say, a milestone bonus. I think that's fine. Yeah. Do you cap the variable or do you make it uncapped? We make it uncapped. We actually have uh, accelerators if you overhit your assigned targets and we make it more attractive for you to, to get there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then of your sales team, what kind of percentage of them would you expect to hit their OTA? If you were setting targets the right way and if you were then 
running your sales team and managing them to the right level of performance, meaning the good ones are overhitting, the average ones are hitting, the underhitting ones, you're doing something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you should expect you know, that you're doing about 70, 80% of them uh, who are actually hitting the numbers. Okay. Uh, and then how many would be like materially exceeding? Oh, maybe about 10%, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And of the ones not hitting... In your experience, can you turn them around or is it like, no, that was just not a good hire and we should hire someone else? It's a mix, Mm. uh, but I would say in most instances, it tends to be more, we didn't get the right person. Mm. Yeah, My take on sales performance tends to be if all the other conditions are right, meaning you've got a market, (laughs) you've got a business model and PMF, so all those things are not variables. Um, And you know that everyone else is showing that it can be done, right? You're looking at something like, you know, it's maybe like 70, 80% uh, whether you got the right person or not. Okay. And with the right training and coaching, you can uplift that performance by maybe about 10%. Mm-hmm. But if the gap is more than that, you're probably not working with the right person. Yeah. And then how do you think about that as it relates to teams? So if you have, you know, two sales teams, same geography, same vertical, and the those kind of percentages you mentioned are very out of whack for the two teams, either grossly overperforming team or grossly underperforming team. How do you think about that at the manager level, whether that's the managers just got either a great set of reps or a horrendous set of reps, or it's actually <laughs> no, that manager's having a disproportional impact on the success of the team? So I think the good news is that I think we technically have never gotten ourselves into that exact situation. Because I think if a manager wasn't able to demonstrate some degree of success, we would be a lot more prudent about uh, investing to a sizable presence uh, mm-hmm. under a particular individual. So I think, I mean, after all, we're still a venture back business. You mm-hmm. know, we're still a growth stage business. So we're quite careful and we're quite incremental in how we see presences of yeah. teams. But slightly different variation of that would be, let's say we have a new geo. Earlier this year, we, we took a more intentional expansion to Hong Kong and we did exactly that. We seeded two sales individuals mm-hmm. and we ran basically an implicit competition between the two. Um, what happened in the end was I think one significantly outperformed the other. We decided to invest more in the one who did well and allow him to build a team around himself. We let go of the other. Were they people that were already working in the company successful in one geo and you took them and put them in a new geo or you hired people with geo mm, experience? Great question, right? So, you know, we operate in, in Asia and I think every member of the audience here would probably agree that Asia is a very diverse and very complex region. Uh, even within Southeast Asia itself, you know, uh, Singapore is a really small geography, right? So you walk uh, 40 kilometers in one direction and suddenly the national language is a, is a different one, right? Mm. Um, so I think we do believe that to be successful in this region, um, localization is super important. You can't underestimate the degree of uh, local context that you need to be a good operator. Mm-hmm. And I think the flip side of that is that ad- adaptation that I mentioned earlier, right? You also therefore cannot assume that whatever works in Singapore, you can just take it and plug and play it in Hong Kong, right? So there is a difference, right? Even though the two cities superficially look quite similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so localization is important. And therefore, I think when you're building sales presences, you do need to account for that and you want to invest in uh, a local person. Mm-hmm. What we did was we did both, right? So uh, we did that, but we also realized that you needed to to hedge, right? For potential, well, the risk of a new hire because it's a new geo, it's not someone connected to your team. So you also wanted to put someone that you trusted and you understood. Well, it's like a blending of context too, right? You want 
all the company context and all the local context. That's right. And unfortunately, when you're expanding, you can't get both in any one individual. So yeah. you kind of have to do that That's right. approach. Exactly. So you've got to take a bit of a hybrid approach. Mm -hmm. So we, we chose to uh, follow the philosophy of let old guys do new things. Mm -hmm. Got a trusted uh, deputy to go out and do a new thing. But at the same time, we invested in a local hire. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we said, okay, let's see which one works out better. <laughs> With the last question, <laughs> right. if you had a son that was taking a sales role or a daughter and she came to you and she said, uh, dad, what should I ask for comp wise? <laughs> what would you advise she should push for from a base variable stock? <laughs> Who is she working for? Let, how, let's just how, do that. How, how, how old is she? She is twenty-five, and it's a SaaS company. That's all. That's that's all. That, I want it to be broad-based advice. That's that's as that's as narrow as we can go. I'll answer in terms of percentages and ratios. Okay? Mm -hmm. I think that that helps to to address it a bit. I think if it was a SaaS company, as I said, I think. Uh, you would expect uh, a variable component that's at least 100% of your, of your fix. I think you would expect then to be carrying a quota that's between maybe 5 to 10x uh, mm -hmm. of, your, of your fix. And then I think as for where you pack your fix, depending on which time of year, uh, what year it is in the future and which market you're in, you want to make sure that you are not just your market competitive with comparable SaaS companies. So you don't want to be matching yourself against businesses that have very different business models to a SaaS. Mm -hmm. You want to be looking at like for like B2B SaaS and you say, okay, those guys are paying around that much. I want to be around the median of that. If she thinks, listen, dad, there's 10% flex in the current offer. Should I push on base or should I push on stock? What's your answer? I work for a startup. I've been working for startups for the last... Um, uh, 12 years. So my view might be somewhat biased here, but mm -hmm. I, I would say go for the stock, right? Okay. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Stock. Yeah. Everyone fast. So that's, fair. Uh, that, <laughs> that's not a bad answer. I think I would have the same for yeah. my daughter as well. So thank you everybody. And we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the startup special mini series of the Asia growth forecast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show. And if you're a startup looking for more content and resources to help you scale, head over to hubspot.com forward slash startups.